0: Welcome, Uh, one and all. So uh, I'd like to welcome Craig Jeffy from uh, the University of Washington. Um, I uh, first got to know Craig's work when I was working on political um, corruption and clientelism, vote buying, these kinds of issues. And I read a really interesting article that he wrote on political corruption in UP uh, that I just thought was was fabulous um, exploration of uh, not just how it happened, but the sort of performative, ritualistic aspects of... How corruption goes on um, that reflected just really deep ethnographic uh, work in a way that, that much of the work, at least on, on corruption, doesn't. And I think uh, what strikes me about lots of his work is, is it's based on uh, intense field work that enables him to come up with uh, different explanations and different theories that people who do less intense uh, field work uh, are not able to get to. So it's a great pleasure to welcome him. He's got a very long CV, which I won't. Going to now, but uh, just welcome him here and introduce his talk to a class to his part, youth and the politics of waiting in India.
1: Thanks, Stephen. I'd like to thank the South Asia Centre and particularly Stephen for inviting me here um, and also Dwapayan and, and Brian for your help in arranging today's visit. Uh, my presentation starts with an anecdote. In May 1996, I spent a month living in Meerut College in Uttar Pradesh, India. I was doing PhD research at the time. In September 2004, I returned to at College, this time to do research on student politics. I was really quite nervous about my return, about whether I'd get on with a new batch of students, about the age gap that had opened up between me and my informants. But I soon realised that I need not have worried. Many of the students I met in 1996 were still living in Myrlet College in the same hostels in 2004. Between 1996 and 2004, I'd finished my PhD, i got married, I'd got an academic job. During the same period, many of my informants, now in their mid-30s, had, it seemed, stayed still. Marginalised by processes of economic liberalisation in India, they had little option but to wait. What can I do but study, wait and hope that things will work out? one student asked. The rapid rise of unemployment among educated young men is for me one of the most troubling aspects of global social change. Images of success based on schooling and entry into white collar employment have encouraged young people to invest in formal education. Yet global economic restructuring has undermined young people's efforts to obtain secure work. In places as diverse as Morocco, Argentina, France, and India, there are now a huge number of young people, most of them men, but including some young women, who harbour dreams of entering permanent salaried work, but who seemingly spend much of their time hanging out or simply waiting. Of course, this phenomenon is not new, but the scale, visibility and global reach of educated unemployment is unprecedented. And young men's frustration has become a key focus of scholarly and policy concern. This paper then focuses on the politics of educated unemployment. I want to challenge the popular vision of educated, unemployed young men as a social danger intent on the destruction of civilised society and the state. I suggest instead that in a region of North India, young men's common experience of unemployment has generated broad-based forms of youth critique and a more variegated landscape of class-based struggle. My main argument is that class fractures more inclusive forms of youth mobilisation. I really should stress, this is very much work in progress. and I'm very keen to get your, your feedback on, on emerging ideas. I want to challenge three key themes in mainstream, by which I mean Western research on youth. First, the notion that class has become less important in young people's futures has become a powerful theme within research on youth. The sociologist Ulrich Beck has argued that increasing material wealth and the emergence of more flexible labor markets has led to a decline in the importance of class. Second, scholars have argued that class is becoming less relevant as an identity. Beck, again, argues that capitalist transformations in the realms of politics, society, and culture have led to the emergence of more plural, more fluid forms of identification that rarely correspond with a person's class of origin. This ties in, of course, with influential post-structuralist theories emphasizing the performative nature of individual subjectivities. Third, Many many authors argue that there's been a marked decline in class and party political-based activism among young people after the 1960s. Involvement in party politics has decreased, young people are increasingly reluctant to vote in elections, and political mobilisation based upon class and ideology is waning. Authors making these three arguments usually posit them as applicable to a universal youth subject. My work, I think, provides a counterpoint to these recent trends in youth research. In Western UP, class continues to shape the capacity of young men to navigate educated unemployment, and politics remains central to young people's lives. But I contend that politics and class must be re-theorized somewhat to serve as useful analytical tools in the Western UP context. In thinking about politics, I've been influenced by a range of literature on governmentality in the state. Drawing on the work of Foucault, much recent scholarship on the anthropology of the state in South Asia has discussed the apparatus through which the state constitutes people as subjects of rule. Much of this literature refers to governmentality, understood often as the micro-political processes through which the state conditions people to act in specific ways. Authors demonstrate our particular visions of proper behavior, of technological accomplishment, of entrepreneurship, disseminated by powerful institutions shape the practices of ordinary people. Much recent work, and I think, for example, of uh, Pata Chatterjee, has examined how the masses actively respond to governmentalizing practices by making claims on the state. Chatterjee emphasises how this happens not so much with informal organisations, what he calls civil society, but rather through a whole range of nefarious, semi-legal, and sometimes violent tactics that he calls political society. The central contribution of my work here I think, is to provide a grounded and detailed case study of how middle classes within political society monopolise and reproduce power. I offer a vision of political society turned in upon itself, wherein middle class youth, often in league with government officials, intensively defend their power against the incursions of the poor, including poorer, educated, unemployed young men. My work therefore contributes to Foucault's project by not only examining resistance to governmentality, but also highlighting the runnels and reserves of power which build up within governmentalized populations and which fracture projects of resistance. The work of the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu offers a partially instructive means of theorizing these runnels and reserves of power. Bourdieu argued that young people are differentiated according to their possession of economic capital, social capital, which he defines as youthful social connections, and cultural capital, a range of goods, titles, and forms of behavior that confer distinction in social situations. Bourdieu was especially interested in the everyday practices through which class advantage is communicated and reinforced, and he stressed the manner in which power is contained within the habitus, internalized orientations to action, inscribed in people's movements, reflexes, and tastes. Bourdieu viewed society as comprised of distinct fields of social competition, or what he sometimes calls gaming spaces, in which people with higher volumes of economic, social and cultural capital, and with a habitus more attuned to possibilities for gain, outmanoeuvre poorer groups. But Bourdieu's rather abstracted concept of fields of force seems somewhat remote from questions of meaning-filled space and spatiality. Building on uh, Massey and Lefebvre, it's important to recognise that space is never a static backdrop or container for social action, but actually thoroughly implicated in political life. Moreover, spatial representations, which can be as diverse as notions of nature, ideas about the West, or ideas of entrapment, are threaded through young men's attempts to manage educated unemployment. Time, as well, is a key theme of my account. Recent literature on youth has emphasised how economic uncertainty often reorders young people's experience of time. Young people's achievement of particular life goals, such as marriage, employment, or starting a family, may be delayed, accelerated, disrupted, or abandoned altogether. In the context of these changes, I want to highlight the importance of time as a force shaping young men's lives. I also point to time as a resource for political mobilisation, especially how young men manipulate the tempo of social life. I want to think too about time as a theme of youth activism, for example, when temporal ideas become the object of moral scrutiny. I'll elaborate these points through reference to ethnographic field research among students. Before I do so though, I want to briefly situate my analysis with reference to the political economy of Uttar Pradesh. As most of you I'm sure know, UP is the most populous state in India with a population of 160 million roughly in 2001. It's also one of the poorest states and India's economic reforms since the early 1990s have increased inequalities between UP and more prosperous regions. Liberalization reduced opportunities for government employment in UP historically an important source of salaried work for the young men I'm describing. Outside metropolitan areas, liberalisation often failed to generate private sector jobs. UP's long-established industrial base of textile mills, especially in the the second city, Kanpur, has almost completely collapsed, and UP has played almost no part in emerging IT, outsourcing, and other new industries for which India has become renowned. These changes have coincided in marked shifts in the nature of higher education. Until about 1990, the public sector was becoming increasingly important within higher education in UP. But the fiscal crisis of the UP government, allied to neoliberal economic reforms introduced in the 90s, has eroded government higher educational provision. Government colleges and universities typically lack teaching aids and equipment, catering facilities and basic amenities. In this context, higher education is increasingly provided within non-state institutions and expensive extra-college tutorials in UP. This enduring neglect of equitable social development in UP is linked to the entrenched class and caste structure of the state. Very briefly, upper caste Brahmins and Rajputs have dominated lucrative salaried employment and land ownership in many parts of UP. A second group of intermediate castes, such as the Jats and Gujas, have increasingly challenged the power of the upper caste, and control access to land and local political power in many western parts of the state. The remainder of UP's population is mainly comprised of Muslims, poorer backward castes, and Dalits. Members of this third group are typically landless and work in manual labouring employment. But the political economy of UP has also been subject to considerable change during the past 15 years. Most notably, the emergence of the pro-Dalit Bahujan Samaj party, the BSP, has altered the character of North Indian politics. The BSP has attempted to install Dalits in the UP bureaucracy, channel development funds towards Dalits, and of course, transform the symbolic landscape of UP, particularly through the construction of statues representing the Dalit hero, Dr. Bimurao Ambedkar. My research on the relationship between these forms of political change and processes of social reproduction has involved 38 months of ethnographic field work carried out over the past 13 years. And I've been talking to some of the young men I'll be discussing today for, for over a decade. I carried out doctoral research in the mid-90s on how rich farmers are co-opting and colonising the local state in North India. For the past nine years, I've been focusing on the cultural politics of educated unemployment and the place of education in rural people's social imaginaries. I've written up much of this work in a new book, which is called Degrees Without Freedom, and it's just been uh, published last week by by Stanford University Press. I'll be talking today mainly about the most recent round of research, which focused on student politics. I worked mainly in two higher educational institutions in Meerut: Chaudhuri-Chanan Singh University, which i call CCSU, and Meerut College. I'll concentrate today talking about CCSU, which contained 2,600 students in 2004, 25% of which were upper caste, 40% middle caste Jats or Gujras, and 25% Dalits. CCSU grants affiliation to a further 360 colleges, most of them privately run. Over a quarter of a million students study in these colleges. My research in CCSU consisted of interviews, participant observation, questionnaire surveys and the construction of a newspaper archive. Many of the young men I'm discussing in this paper acted as mentors, guides and critics in the field. And it's to their political strategies that I now turn. One of the key findings of my research was to uncover the political importance of a generation of young men excluded from salaried work. Middle students usually lacked the social contacts required to obtain positions in metropolitan India and the well-developed English skills required for IT and outsourcing work. Instead, young men studying at CCSU would typically spend several years applying for government jobs. This process is gruelling. Young men refer to the need to memorise reams of general knowledge questions, travel to distant examination centres and shifty friends, relatives and social contacts into s- offering support for their applications. In the wake of these efforts, students often had to wait for up to 18 months to receive news. Because students can continue to apply for government jobs until their mid-30s, this process of repeated failure may continue, continue and has done, in many cases, for 15 years. Many students spoke of routine malpractice within the competition for government jobs. They said that without bribe money or good social contacts, it's impossible to obtain secure salaried employment. As many respondents put it, in the cutthroat market for government work, everyone now needs source, by which they meant social connections, and force, physical strength. Young men studying at CCSU were differently equipped to respond to their exclusion from salaried work middle caste Jats have been fairly successful in reacting to this employment crisis by moving into agriculture, private service jobs or politics. Dalits have been much less successful because they lack land and also because they lack the social connections necessary to obtain private service employment in Meerut's informal economy. Many Dalits, even masters graduates, were forced during their thirties to return to their villages to conduct manual wage labour. I've looked at the political implications of, of this process in, in other work. Students' shared experience of exclusion from opportunities to find secure work had generated a common sense of anger and bewilderment, appropriating broader narratives of young male aimlessness circulated by parents, the media, and the state. These men often characterized themselves as useless, empty, wandering, or unemployed. Young men were not claiming that they were incapable of performing youthful work or that they lacked employment. Many of them would refer to themselves as unemployed while engaged in part-time work in the informal economy or while studying at university. Rather, they use these terms to signal disjuncture between their present occupational status and their educational standing, and to signal their own hope that something better is just around the corner. Notions of lost time were pervasive. Young men occasionally discussed their studies and present work as a form of time pass, a word derived from the Middle English term past time. The term time pass connoted young men's sense of the provisional nature of their current work. It was also linked to their frustration at having spent several years applying for government jobs. A time-pass attitude was often contrasted with a serious one. They used the English word serious. Time-pass also carried with it associations of ironic detachment from the present, of being a void waiting to be filled. The idea of time-pass carried over to discussions of sexual relations. Young men's inability to obtain secure salaried employment meant they were usually unable to marry until their early or mid-30s. In this context, a culture of sexual prowess had emerged among some young men, built on a type of hypermasculinity, and visibly manifest in practices of loitering and verbal harassment. This coexisted with a rather alt ethic of chivalry, wherein young men expressed their serious devotion to their parents, respect for their college seniors, love for their girlfriend, and brotherly protection of female students from their own caste men's discourse of time pass also related to a concern over the moral problem of how to manage surplus time while living in the denuded space of the contemporary North Indian college. The recent privatisation of higher education and the frequency of political actions meant that classes in the university were short, infrequent and disorganised. Extracurricular activities and educational facilities on college campuses were virtually non-existent. Students increasingly obtained the majority of their knowledge from textbooks written by their professors, which they read in their hostel rooms or in tea stalls, and from private tutorials, which often occurred in the basement of professors' large homes in middle-class parts of the city. Students living in hostels in Millet usually spent only short, times of period, short periods of time studying and typically divided their days between politics, trips to tea stalls, chatting in people's rooms, reading newspapers, and playing games, especially cricket, badminton, and cards. Many students argued that these forms of time pass allowed them to make it through the days, but they also referred to their activities with a sense of melancholy, born, an born of an awareness of how the campus has been hollowed out as a space of learning. This sense of time without end was cross-cut by moments of crisis and emergency. Students were often under intense pressure to revise for exams, apply for government jobs, and balance these commitments alongside responsibilities to their families. A vocabulary of cramming, rushing, and an absence of time coexists alongside the language of waiting and time pass. Indeed, it's this combination of inertia and panic that I think best characterizes the social experiences of many of my informants. And also I'd add my experience of field research and my experience of being a young uh, academic in a uh, a large state US university. These cultures of temporal dislocation have precipitated a type of public culture of moral indignation among students. Not only hostile residents and young men, but also students residing outside the campus and young women. This moral indignation tended to focus around three key issues. First, students bemoaned the failure of the state to promote job opportunities for graduates. Second, many students complained about the privatisation or commercialization of education, especially the increasing tendency for college professors to abandon their formal du- teaching duties in favour of tutorials. Third, students expressed their anger at corruption, brush to within the university administration, within local government bureaucracies, and among politicians. These forms of critique generated political protest, but these protests were sporadic and short and tended to focus around immediate issues arising in the life of the university. During the first two weeks of my research in September 2004 alone, there were student protests in at College to re-establish student union elections on campus, a mass demonstration in response to midnight raids on college hostels undertaken by the police, And a student rally highlighting the problem of corruption in the process of admissions. Distinct from earlier youth protests, this mobilisation tends to involve students in voicing their entitlements as students to particular social goods. Moreover, whereas student leaders in the past often left campus to organise workshops and protests in rural areas or on the fringes of the city, contemporary student protests are more tightly organised around reshaping the physical space of the campus. Student protests frequently involved blocking major campus roads, barricading university officials in their offices, or closing down the university altogether. Caste, class, and gender divisions tended to militate against the emergence of durable civil society organisations within this form of youth political society. In particular, the existence of a well-organised middle class within the population of educated unemployed young men acted to undermine possibilities for sustained student protest. And to illustrate this point, I want to move now to talk about a single uh, Jat young man called Garish. 28 in 2004, Garish was one of four brothers, and he came from a moderately prosperous rural Jat family owning 12 acres of land. His father had sent him to a private English medium school on the edge of Meerut, hoping that Garish would obtain a job outside agriculture, preferably within government service. But Garish repeatedly failed to obtain a salaried position. In 2002, Gadish moved to CCSU and be- began a political career. Between 2002 and 04, he tried to establish a good reputation among his CCSU peers. Gadish led populist demonstrations against malpractice within the university and lobbied the local state on behalf of other students. In the two months preceding the student union elections in 2004, Gadish spent huge amounts of money producing coloured election pro- posters, hiring jeeps to ferry his supporters around Mirat, and paid for a local tea store to distribute free tea and snacks to students. Gadish obtained a senior post in the CCSU Student Union in October 2004. In the six months after capturing his position, Gadish slowly shifted the weight of his efforts away from campaigning around student issues and into accumulating money. Gadish used his political position to act as a broker between private educational entrepreneurs and the CCSU bureaucracy. And after three months in post, Ganesh had earned enough to purchase a car. Nor did Ganesh's influence end when his term on the student union expired. In March 2007, Ganesh was earning 8,000 rupees a month, a reasonable salary in local terms, working as a political intermediary for a Jart businessman who'd established a teacher training college close to Meerut, Ganesh advised the entrepreneur on matters of strategy, linked the college management to the CCSU bureaucracy, and used Jart muscle, muscle power to suppress student agitations, over the lack of facilities in the college. Gadish's case offers wider insights, I think, into the strategies of Jhats student leaders, and I'm briefly going to describe these. Jarts have successfully dominated the CCSU student union. Of the 30 people who held one of the top two positions in the CCSU student union between 1991 and 2004, 24 were either Jarts or Gujas. Jarts captured these posts in part through developing a reputation for moral action among students. They launched high-profile protests against corruption within university and government offices, and these were reported in favourable terms within local newspapers and television stations. Most student leaders kept a dossier of articles and photographs describing their anti-corruption protests. Student leaders also relied on caste solidarities to win power. They organised feasts, parties and meetings for other jats, at which they celebrated popular stereotypes of jats as honest, straightforward and hardworking. Jat leaders also spent vast sums of money on their student union election campaigns. They obtained much of this cash from their families, but they also contacted ex-student activists who put them in contact with political parties. A close link with the political party offered financial sp- sponsorship and social support, and a few politicians visited the CCSU campus prior to elections to pledge their allegiance to candidates. Student leaders also tried to obtain the nomination of the Hindu nationalist Akhil Bharatiya Vidyati Parishad the ABVP, the student wing of the Bharatiya Janata party, the BJP. The ABVP provided organizational assistance for their campaigns. Jats seeking ABVP backing typically viewed this quest in entirely pragmatic terms and rarely demonstrated an enthusiasm for Hindu nationalist ideas. Aside from the BJP, most political parties had no active student wing in Mirat. So Mirat's very different in this respect from some other major UP cities. Like Gadish, Jat student leaders usually abandoned their pretense to be assisting the ordinary student after winning the student union elections. They devoted time instead to building social networks that would provide rapid economic profits. Jat student leaders on the CCSU student union could earn between 800,000 rupees and 1 million rupees from their posts in the early and mid 2000s. They made this money in part through working as paid intermediaries between students and the administration, often assisting with admissions. They also worked as fixers for private educational entrepreneurs in the negotiations with CCSU. Student leaders lobbied CCSU university officials to grant affiliation to a private college and in return received the right to nominate applicants to seats in that college, which they could then auction to the highest bidders. Student union leaders were also able to influence appointments to teaching and administrative positions within CCSU, and again they could earn money through auctioning posts which they controlled. Moreover, student politicians had some say over the disbursement of contracts and tenders for the construction of government and private educational institutions. Student leaders often received bribes from business interests to channel contracts their their way, and after leaving university, some leaders became contractors themselves. Student leaders redistributed a portion of their earnings to those who'd helped finance their student union campaign. They also invested money in fighting new student elections and hiring university professors to write masters or PhD dissertations on their behalf. After leaving their student union post, Jart politicians often used their social contacts to obtain permanent employment, often as university professors or as advocates, both jobs which they could combine with continued political activity, often at the municipal or district level. Since the early 1990s, no Jart leaders have entered state-level or central politics. Student leaders argued that the chances of becoming a state- or central-level politician were extremely remote relative to the rich pickings available within the informal economy of state practices. The power of Jat student leaders rests then on their, on their wealth, their social networking resources and cultural, power, cultural capital. Their power was also underpinned by their control over the means of force. Student leaders often have better access to the police than Dalits or even upper castes on campus, largely because JARTS could draw upon social networks established by rural senior kin. Jart's political success also resided in their capacity to affect strategies that straddled and connected the rural and the urban. Jart political leaders redeployed tactics derived from rural politics to acquire student union posts. For example, they organized lavished parties for their supporters on the nights running up to the election, intimidated voters on polling day and attempted to capture electoral booths located inside CCSU. All tactics, of course, borrowed from local government elections in 1990's Western UP, rural Western UP. It's possible to identify three sets of students who were trying to critique Jat power. First, the rise of the BSP in UP politics had encouraged unemployed Dalit men to contest the dominance of the Jats. Dalits lacked the money to launch careers in the student union and focused instead on expanding their social networks in order to assist other members of their caste. Letter writing was a key feature of these Dalit strategies. Dalit leaders spent long periods of the day in their hostel rooms composing letters to senior government officials and politicians which outlined the extent and nature of corruption and of dominant student leaders' malpractice. In these cases, a type of dogged persistence appeared to compensate for Dalit's lack of economic, social and cultural capital. At second, a set of students from diverse caste backgrounds were involved in developing forms of left-wing critique and action within higher educational institutions in Meerut. Many of these students conduct part-time work on local newspapers where they're often locked in struggles with editors to publish articles critical of the state. Third, a few unemployed young women in Mirat, mainly from upper or middle caste backgrounds, were attempting to undermine the strategies of Jha'at student leaders through cultivating social links with the state. Educated un- or underemployment has also affected young women's lives in Mirat directly, because, mid, because parents within the urban middle class are increasingly allowing their daughters and daughters-in-law to move in, to pursue paid employment outside the home. And indirectly, since young men's failure to, to move rapidly into employment has contributed to, an in, contributed to an increase in the age of marriage. These young women did not usually participate in collective student protests on campus or in student union elections but they were often able to make direct and rapid contact with the most senior district-level government officials and thereby exert some influence over politics in the city and higher education. Young women traded on their excellent English, affinities of habitus, a certain capacity as young women to speak truth to power, and like the Dalits, a refusal to give up. A concern with gender politics often characterises the political strategies of these young women who often formulate powerful critiques of jart masculine dominance. The activities of these three groups of delits, left-wing students, and young women were poorly coordinated, but they shared a central interest in critiquing Jart student leaders whom they depicted as betraying a broader student cause. At rallies, via posters, through newspapers, and in everyday discussion, they accused Jarts of being corrupt and short-sighted. Jarts engaged in four interlinked strategies to counter these charges of betraying a broader student cause. First, Jart circulated moral discourses in which they stated their opposition to all forms of corrupt practice and referred to their activities euphemistically as work, business, or a game, care. The idea of being engaged in a game of life with distinct rules and players was especially ubiquitous. There was a kind of recursivity built into Jart young men's use of these terms such that the claim to be part of a game itself became a strategy within the game And a rationale for continuing to engage in game-like plays of power. Second Jart leaders attempted to obscure their dealings through issuing denials. I frequently watched some of the most notoriously rapacious student leaders issuing bold challenges to their audiences at large public gatherings. You tell me one instance in which I've been corrupt. When students started listing examples The student leader would dismiss their arguments as self-interested and false, or else accuse his opponent of failing to appreciate true corruption, say, Barastacar. Third, student leaders refer to to the necessity of colluding with the state, often with the reference to the notion of being caught somehow within a wider network or gaming space. A leading student politician in CCSU put it in this way, and I quote, an honest person cannot succeed in politics in UP. Politics here is about competition. It's a game. If I'm on foot and competing against a person on a motorcycle, I will lose. If I'm honest, people will bear down on me on all sides, trying to pressurize me into taking money. No, to succeed in politics here, you need need public support. And this only comes through having money and physical strength. Fourth. Jart student leaders argued that their efforts to make money paled into insignificance when held alongside the venality and avarice of the university administration. In this context, several student leaders distinguished between their own corruption, understood here as institutionalized deviations from formal procedures that have become part of the taken for granted of everyday political life, and fraud, using the English word fraud, actions that contravene the moral codes embedded within Quotidian corruption. Thus, for example, student leaders said that they regularly colluded with the university registrar to raise students' grades and examinations. OK, corruption, as one man quipped. But student politicians were outraged when it emerged that the registrar of CCSU had been lining his pockets by arranging for master's theses to be graded by school students as young as eight years old, (laughs) an action of basic fraud which brought CCSU students into the streets in August 2006 to burn their degrees. Notwithstanding these attempts at denial and obfuscation, most Jat student leaders did regard it as demeaning and morally compromising to be colluding with university and government officials. JARTS argued that they have a long-term interest in building cross-caste and cross-class alliances in order to protest against aspects of state corruption, mismanagement and commercialisation in Uttar Pradesh. But in the short term, They said they wanted to profit from their class-based social networks to pursue more self-interested political projects. As one Jart student leader noted, Craig, this is just ordinary politics. To conclude then, my work contributes to mainstream studies of youth by highlighting the importance of class and politics in young people's lives. Educated un- or underemployed young men often engaged in a range of forms of everyday political maneuver that allow them to sustain their relative power. These accord in broad terms with Partha Chatterjee's notion of political society but the concept of political society must be reworked to the UP context to better anticipate durable networks of dominant practice that exist within the masses. Class powerfully fractures collective youth mobilization. A contextual account of educated, unemployed young men in North India also exposes the crucial importance of time and space in the strategies of youth. Three things are at play here, I think. First, social and political change in UP has created a particular articulation between age, space, and social disadvantage, such that a cohort of young people, especially men, have been compelled to spend their 20s and 30s engaged in what Pierre Bourdieu once called social dreaming attempts to imagine and believe in the possibility of a future that's objectively highly unlikely and to do so in the most unpropitious temporal and spatial landscape. There are some signs of an upturn in the UP economy from 2005 onwards and the next generation of students may be more fortunate than those that arrived in Meerut to study in the 1990s. But this in no way diminishes the importance of understanding a set of young men, my own peers, who are marooned by processes of North Indian social development. Second, Time itself has become a type of resource for young men. As one Dalit said to me, time is the one thing I do have. Finally, ideas of time and temporality have become central to young men's discourses such that many men perceive themselves to be waiting or engaged only in time pass. I think possibilities for creating new assemblages of power reside in the activities of the Dalits, left-wing students and young women whom I've described. But I also think that JATS student leaders themselves might be considered as potential important development agents. The JATS are in, embroiled in the here and now of ordinary politics, but they also aspire to alternative futures.